Hi and welcome to a new episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Christian Wenz and with me today are co-hosts Mark Miller and Adam Furmanek. Christian, I think, I think we should be called co-adventurers, not co-hosts. Co okay, co-adventurers. Co I, I haven't seen the latest Indiana Jones yet, so I don't know whether an adventurer is a positive or negative thing. So I, okay. I try to stay... Um, All right, we'll, we'll, we'll put that neutral. on the table until we've seen the movie. Okay, okay, we will, we will. Um, and uh, in this episode, uh, Adam um, would like to talk about, well, let me just say, without giving away too much, uh, networking in .NET and how you should not do it. Would that, would that be a kind of sufficient description of uh, what we've planned for today? I would make it a little bit more specific that we are going to talk about network, like instant messengers networking, this kind of stuff, not going down to drivers. But yeah, you basically nailed it. So let me start this rant, as you said, how not to do it. Um, for many years, um, I, I was working on a project um, that uh, which goal was to connect various instant messengers and make them uh, into one network. I'm talking here about like Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Slack, Discord, uh, Jabber, XMPP, ICQ, IRC. Uh, Steam, and probably could go on and on. And I, I even forgot what other protocols I supported in that project. And um, and the idea was to basically allow for inter intercommunication. So the user, like using Facebook Messenger, could connect someone from Google Meet or from Slack channel or whatever else, and just share messages back and forth. And Actually, I was I was using a software like that, like I don't know, 15 years ago or, or even longer. Oh, it started with a T. Help me. Do you know what I mean? It was like it had AOL Instant Messenger plus ICQ plus I don't know what. I mean, most of the things you mentioned weren't even invented back then, right? Oh, it started with a T. Let let, let me look it up. Please proceed. <laughs> but uh, I sure I love the approach back then. But uh, yeah, I think eventually they gave up because the services yeah, uh, back then yeah. were not that standardized. So they kind of pulled pulled the plug on them. Yeah, let's actually go for a little bit of history. Once you mentioned that there were many approaches to to achieve that. Some approaches were based on like building a multi-communicator stuff, Pigeon, uh, Miranda on Windows, or some other applications. They aimed to basically do that, that you had like multiple plugins for different networks. And you as a user could basically have all your favorite protocols inside one messenger application, right? And, and that was pretty cool. The, the problem with that approach or like lack of feature was that, okay, you could message someone from, uh, from uh, let's say, different networks like people from Messenger, people from WhatsApp and whatnot, but like you couldn't message someone over Facebook Messenger and that wouldn't be routed to different WhatsApp icons. Let's put it this way. There was no interoperability between those. Um, and some other applications, uh, for instance, IM Plus, which was actually a pretty cool mm -hmm. communicator, they tried doing, uh, doing something like that, that instead of, uh, that they would let you join various bridges in this way. 
For instance, IAM Plus application that I was using personally for many years lets you do something like this, that you could get, receive a message from Skype or from Slack, whatever. And if you were not around your computer when this message arrived, then IAM Plus was mailing you. So you could receive an email, reply back to that email, and then your response would get delivered to, to Messenger, to WhatsApp, whatever else, which was pretty neat, I must say. And I was using this application just because I was too lazy to configure all those networks I mentioned. And back then, like I really had like 15 or 20 different networks that I was using day to day. And I was just... Let's put it this way. It wasn't a fun experience when I got a new mobile phone, tablet, or computer, and I had to configure all of that. So I decided to start working on a platform that would let me let me do that. And another note on the historical stuff. A couple of years back, something like maybe a decade ago, it used to be way easier than doing stuff like that today. Why? Because 10 years ago, Facebook was basically running on Jabber. Uh, same was uh, same was uh, Google uh, Google Hangouts, I think it was mm-hmm. called back then. Uh, generally, there was a very nice traction around the Jabber XMPP protocol. It got really popular like 10, 15 years ago, uh, which was supposed to be very extensible. I think XMPP stands for Extensible Messaging Platform Protocol, something like this, which was XML-based, which let you integrate various servers. It was federated, open source, yada, yada. idea was anyone could you know, spawn their own server, connect to this big family of Jabber servers, and you could talk between servers. And actually, Facebook supported that. Same did uh, Google, Google Hangouts back then. Uh, and it was really cool time. You could talk from Google to Messenger to some other networks very easy. The problem with that, and now it's my speculation, because those networks were like, you couldn't make money out of that. They decided to basically close those solutions. Another problem with that was though that there was no standard way of doing like video calls or file transfers between these networks. So generally, if you wanted to send, I don't know, um, like a funny cat video, it was a little bit harder on a protocol level. But I think they decided to lock those things down just because, well, they couldn't monetize that. But but may I ask a question? Uh, maybe maybe it's that's too technical uh, at the moment. But so so if you have XMPP as uh, kind of the the lingua franca that that everyone speaks, and and I'm on I don't know AOL Instant Messenger and like to send a message to a Facebook Messenger user. So what what is the sender address? And and how could that Facebook user reply? to someone very, outside the, the, the ecosystem? Then. Very good question. If you go to Facebook Messenger and you click on your friend, you will find big number indicating this is like a person that, ID. That's a Facebook ID. Okay, okay. Yeah, so that your uh, your XMPP address for that was something like big number at facebook.com, mm-hmm. I okay, think. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it's not displayed when you are within the ecosystem, but uh, with an XMPP savvy yeah. client, you could yeah. find it out. Okay. Yeah, okay, exactly. Right. And XMPP had also one additional feature which sounds really cool, but is terrible to maintain. And this feature is called gateways. 
Meaning you actually touched upon this topic a little bit. XMPP server lets you build a gateway to some other non-XMPP network. For instance, IRC, Slack, Gadugadu, which was very popular Polish network, AOL, ICQ, other stuff. So then if you, for instance, had some user uh, one to three with ID one to three in some AOL or whatever else, it would be represented in your Jabber server as one to three at aol.myjabberserver.com. So they would mimic those Jabber IDs inside the network. And then the server would know that, hey, when you message the user like this, server knows who sends the message. So they know how to connect to AOL using your account and deliver it to the user using your your AOL account or whatever else. So it sounds really cool. You just start one server, one Jabber server, and you have gateways to various networks around the planet. To some of them, you connect directly, like to Facebook, Google Hangouts back then. To some other networks, you connect via gateway. Works like a charm. The problem arises, though, and the problem is maintaining those gateways is actually very, very hard and time-consuming. And so those applications that were popular back then, well, they dropped support for various networks. And that's why I decided to implement my own solution entirely in .NET. So the whole idea to implement the solution was I just wanted to replicate and what IM Plus gave me back then. It gave me connection to Facebook, Skype, couple other stuff, and, uh, and uh, got me this email notification when the message was when I wasn't around. So I just wanted to build something like that. And I wanted to use Jabber. Why? Because it has gateways. So how hard could that be? Took me two evenings to start an application that was basically connecting to a Jabber server, running emails back and forth, sending messages. And I thought that's going to be it. And this I mean, is how this journey... sounds trivial, right? Uh, standardized. Exactly right. Maybe Gateways. someone has already started, started like a boilerplate implementation. Open source, free to use, supported by the community. How hard could that be? And this is how my journey started like... I don't know how long that was, six, seven <laughs> years ago back then. And the application was supposed to be really simple. And now it's grown up to a really big piece of stuff. And uh, just to give you like a little bit of idea how it was supposed to start, uh, how it started and what I support now. So initially the scope was to support just Jabber, sending and receiving emails and routing them over the XMPP network. And that's it. It's not like tier one application. If it dies, that's okay. I can just use native client because the whole point was, okay, I don't want to configure a new device, right? Mm -hmm. Must work on Windows. Wasn't using Docker back then. Nothing like this. It was supposed, I was supposed to write it like two evenings, never touch it again. And fast forward six years from back then, it now supports things like web, desktop, and mobile. <laughs> it can encrypt messages over text, SMS, or even call me with messages when some important priority contact con like 
talks to me. And I can use it on the airplane without Wi-Fi, actually. Being up there, it still works. I can share files, media, videos, whatever else between the networks, meaning that I can send one image to Facebook, WhatsApp, Slack, Discord, whatever still works. I can call people over like cellular GSM network. I can actually make a bridge between like Messenger and Google Voice with camera, with voice, with all that stuff. I can schedule messages to be sent later on. I support, my notes tell me I support 30 plus networks. That may still be true. I actually don't use that many anymore. Adam, why? Why? That's, that's a very good <laughs> question. And it all started just because I, I really wanted to have because this email. Could. Yeah, just because I could. Yeah, <laughs> just because I could. And the hardest part about that, it actually turned to be tier one service, meaning that if it breaks, I really get paged overnight. Yes, I do page myself with my private project, which sounds crazy. Um, but yeah, I use it every day and it really works. And talking about the architecture a little bit, because we are .NET podcast, so, so let's focus on that. Um, initially, I just wanted to use a Jabber, uh, Jabber server. That's it. So I just wanted to have one XMPP client, right? But then the problem with Jabber started that, like I mentioned those gateways in XMPP. And the problem with those gateways is, first, they are very flaky. They really lose messages, drop messages, got disconnected, very hard to maintain. Second, if you don't want to pay for decent Jabber server, and which is actually hard because there are not so many decent servers anymore, and then you don't have a support for networks that you are connecting to, meaning that even if you are happy with some integration to, I don't know, WhatsApp, then this integration may be gone just like that any other day. So I started actually re-implementing some of those networks either by using .NET libraries or by using non-.NET libraries, for instance, Java, Python, JavaScript, or then even started like scraping the web the hard way, uh, meaning that I can scrape HTML or I can extract messages over WebSockets, or I wrote a couple of extensions to Google Chrome just to extract messages from various networks. There is quite a lot of machinery behind the scenes, but all written in .NET just to support those networks, answering your question again, because I could. <laughs> <laughs> and it gave me tons of fun, but still, uh, still a lot of work and many so years. So, how's, the, how's the distribution? So, in your personal <laughs> communication uh, using that tool, how's the distribution between those networks? Is it like you support 30 networks, but 99% is WhatsApp, or um, is that really an even distribution and there's really lots of cross network communication? Because when I use back, back the tool, um, um, Mark, Mark reminded me it's, it was Trillion. And back then, I was not using it for cross-messaging, but for only having, you know, one app with kind of all of my contacts uh, in there. So that was really, really helpful. Um, mm -hmm. Nowadays, I've, I wouldn't say I have standardized, but nowadays I can kind of remember who is where or who can I reach where best, right? But how, how is that distribution? So, so of this 30, 30 networks, how many of them, I mean... Really good question. And actually, this changes over time. When I okay. started... When I started, my main networks were Messenger for most of my friends. 
Jabber for some of my friends from like my computer science university, because obviously programmers, they want to use Jabber, open source, free to use, yada, yada, you get the vibe. No one else uses that, but well, we all freaked out. Uh, and uh, Skype, just to talk to my mom. Um, and I think that was it back then. And Gadu Gadu, which was Polish network. And I had like two friends on this network. So, so most of that, probably 80, 90% was Messenger back then. And those other networks weren't that, that used. Um, however, over time, it actually grew and changed the traffic as well. I'm rarely using Skype nowadays. Yeah, okay. um, Messenger is still probably the main network I use, but it's not 90% anymore. Probably something like half of that. Uh, the other half consists of WhatsApp, Slack a lot, mm -hmm. Discord channels quite a lot. And IRC. I was actually very active on IRC at some point. Now it's a little less um, less useful, especially that, what was it called? Uh, free IRC, not free IRC. Anyway, they migrated to Libera or Libera or whatever you call them now. So generally then people dropped IRC. But anyway, this other percent, 50% is like the distribution of these networks. So this changes over time. And like, like hopefully one day I'll be just using one network. And if I were to choose, that is actually a very good question, which network to choose. I would probably just stick with Messenger. Uh, definitely not WhatsApp, but I will get to that in a second, uh, right after I explain the, the architecture. Uh, and probably not other networks. However, if I ever go to China, then probably WeChat is something I'll need to support. <laughs> uh, talking a little bit about architecture, because we said uh, it's all in .NET. Generally, um, I won't be going much into libraries I was using, but I just want to stress that this architecture started as like very simple application, one process doing all that stuff. But quickly you realize that, hey, it actually needs to be a distributed system with queues in between. So I actually implemented my own queuing system because I wanted to be low resource users, so didn't want to run RabbitMQ. I named the system TQS, a trivial queuing system. And now I should rename it to something like terrible queuing system or whatever. It works, but it's not trivial anymore. But it's yeah. the same vibe as with SBT in Scala. It started a simple build tool. Now they call it Scala build tool because it's not simple anymore. <laughs> nice. So, so moving on, own queuing system, own NoSQL databases, et cetera, et cetera, and basically spawning a set of processes where each process is just one connector that connects to a specific network. And this connector encapsulates stuff like uh, the library to connect to a particular network or the web scraping logic or whatever else, just to get messages back and forth. And now when it comes to implementing that stuff, um, this is actually a, a very nice thingy around uh, how to connect to a network. Uh, it seems like super easy, right? I just take a library that connects to a network and it's all good. But then you realize it's not as trivial as you may think. First, those libraries, they really have crazy bugs. I mean, deadlocks, memory leaks, sec faults, and other stuff. So generally, 
I initially started implementing that as, okay, create new thread. On this new thread, connect to the network. If something pops up, kill the thread, create a new one, reconnect, right? But then I quickly realized this is completely not reliable. Why? Because first, you can't even figure out whether your connection is still alive. And most of the libraries, especially now, when you use async await model, they like you don't have those timeouts anymore. Either you get the exception or you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And so some... one of the issues of the Kestrel uh, web server that kind of you don't have that that the timeout. Um, exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly right. This is like a, a, just a pattern. Whenever you use and use any locking. Always use timeouts. Otherwise, you get a deadlock. And with one thread, like when you don't know whether this connection is still alive or not, you don't know what to do. But then comes the other, the other thing. Let's say that you realize, okay, connection is probably dead. So I should do something about that. What can I do? I can't kill the thread in .NET because then most likely you just terminate the process. Uh, okay, maybe I just kill the socket. But then if you kill the socket, then you might be surprised that you can't reconnect to the same network from the same process anymore because your operating system will stop you because it will tell you kind of there is some different deadlocking in network stack. Nah, probably not. So that's doing any of these on threading level is just not sustainable. You need to move to processes level. And even if you think about that and distributed architecture, uh, you have the same problems when you talk about, like, let's say, enterprise-ready systems. How do they know whether this other node is still alive? Well, you could do some inter-process, inter-nodes, like pink communication. You could have some watchdog, some daemon. But how do you know whether like your watchdog thread is not slow, like crazy or delayed? And maybe the opposite, maybe it's only the watchdog thingy that is still running, but everything apart from the watchdog is already dead. How do you recognize that? And actually, this uh, I learned that this even very simple task, how do I figure out whether connection is still alive? How do I build a watchdog? This is a computer science on its own, really. There are tons of different protocols, approaches, and best practices how to get it right, and it's not trivial, even though it sounds trivial. So when But, you started, there, there were no no uh, shoulders of giants you couldn't uh, stand upon, like, ah, there is this open source official client for Network X. They must have certainly uh, uh, encountered and solved those problems. And here comes the answer, most of the times not. There were some clients for some networks, but most of those clients were kind of open source and, you know, passionate based mm -hmm. or implemented by passionates. And the quality of these clients were was like, it differs. Some clients were pretty cool. Some of them were not. Some of them were like completely synchronous. Some of them were based on like callback mechanisms. So generally having that consistent was very hard. For some net networks, there were no clients in .NET at all. For instance, Skype. Uh, Skype was actually a very interested pro interesting protocol because I think I re-implemented it four times. There was a library 
I think I started with something like Java for Skype. Uh, then, for, then it was like Skype for web or the other thingy, but they were basically Java libraries. And those Java libraries, I was running on .NET using, what was it called? Uh, not JNDI, but there was this Java virtual machine implementation on .NET. Uh, let me actually Google that in the background really quick so we can share this name. Uh, but anyway, you can run .NET applications on .NET uh, pretty easy because there is this, uh, this uh, JVM uh, implementation for that. But the problem with that was that Java has different like exceptions model, meaning that if you have the, the exception unhandled exception on a thread, then in Java, it's cool. It doesn't kill you, doesn't change the stuff for you at all. But if you have unhandled exception on .NET, then it takes your process down. So you can't run this thing uh, really easy. And if you are using libraries from like different protocols for, from different languages, then unfortunately, those libraries may simply not interoperate well with your uh, with your uh, solution that you are having. So you need to implement like anti-corruption layers uh, for some other li libraries and carrying on on this uh, Skype topic. So I started with the, those two libraries and it happened that the support for them, like the, the author dropped support, right? Or they simply stopped working just because Microsoft decided to migrate Skype from like they bought Skype, they migrated link to something they renamed it Skype for web, uh, sorry, Skype for business. Then they merged these two networks together. Uh, so you could talk from Skype to Skype for business and the other way around, I think. And then they migrated it to completely different architecture. So all the libraries were gone and there was no official client for that. So what? So there were other libraries, they tried to use Skype using HTTP-based web interface. And this interface is kind of cool. It works, but you get throttling, but sometimes not features are supported. And sometimes you like it breaks because the message uh, format changed. And for instance, Messenger uh, library, there is a very popular uh, Messenger library in, uh, in JavaScript world which doesn't use MQTT protocol, which is like used by the official messenger client on mobile, but they use web calls for doing that stuff. So sometimes you get throttled and, and whatnot. So generally I had to re-implement uh, Skype four times. With WhatsApp, it was uh, also similar because WhatsApp was actively banning external clients. Mm. So there was a library that was replicating a, a regular WhatsApp protocol and emulating very old Android phone. This very old Android phone had specifically crafted IDs of the device and protocol version. So the protocol was still working and WhatsApp wasn't banning it. But then it changed and they started banning that. So WhatsApp stopped working for me. So I had to re-implement WhatsApp and I used scraping. Uh, so now I scrape WhatsApp actually using... Uh, first, I was scraping just the regular HTML, but now I'm scraping the index DB, I think, and the WebSocket communication, which is there. So I open the browser, 
connect over WhatsApp for web to my account, extract the database and translate it to my stuff. Ah, because uh, the, the web application is then using IndexedDB and uh, basically stores all the messages in and you just watch out for, uh, and for the changes important in that file. Stuff, and important stuff is web application is provided by WhatsApp because this is yeah. WhatsApp web interface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if they change something, it still works. I just scrape the internals. Yeah, yeah, in yeah, some yeah. other networks, you can do similar tricks, but depending on the frameworks you have, you may use different approaches. For instance, I think that uh, the lots of like WhatsApp interface is implemented in React. So you can also get messages from React props. If you know React framework, you know the components, the props, you can extract those props using regular JavaScript code. If some other interface, I think Skype was implemented back then, at least this Skype interface that was integrated into Outlook.com, it was implemented with Knockout. So you could just get knockout bindings and get the JavaScript objects with the messages. Some other networks, for instance, Twitter. It's easier to scrape Twitter if you go to mobile version of Twitter at m.twitter.com, or maybe I should be saying m.x.com. I don't know whether it works. Then scraping the full-blown web page of Twitter because the mobile version was like using some, uh, like the HTML DOM had the uh, message IDs stored and whatnot, and the full-blown web page didn't have that at some point, right? For some other networks, you can just open the web page and plug into WebSockets and extract messages which are coming over there. For some other networks, you can mimic the WebSockets. For instance, there was this Slack library that was opening the WebSocket and talking to the server just like the, the regular Slack client. But it required um, the API uh, key uh, to work. And now Slack changed to OAuth keys and whatnot. So this library, I don't think it works. At least it stopped working for my Slack workspaces. So generally, maintenance and implementation of all these various clients is something that really takes time. It takes time because it works for some time and one day it just breaks just because they change something in the protocol library or wherever else. And that's why it, it blow up significantly, at least initially. Moving on. So we have our protocols, right? We have some integrations with different stuff. We have some queuing. We have some... Uh, some uh, distributed system, NoSQL database that I implemented and, and other stuff. Now comes the question, okay, how do you implement an interface for that? Because initially I wanted to have just emails going back and forth. But then I thought, okay, I have emails. How about sending text messages? How do you send a text message to yourself Obviously, without paying for that, because we want to be this open source and cheap. And actually, the trick that many applications use uh, nowadays, and it's not just me, other applications is the same, is two-factor authentication. So you create an account wherever. Twitter complained that people use it like this. So you create an account in Twitter. You hard code your username and password. And when you want to send yourself a text message, you just emulate browser with URL or whatever else, 
that you enter email, password, click login, and then you need to confirm that with second factor authentication, right? So you get a text message. You have no idea what's going on, but you get a notification kind of, right? And this is actually a very nice way you can extend that to even getting a phone call because like you can get a second factor via voice call, right? So Microsoft, Twitter, GitHub, they can call you if you just select proper things in URL. And multiple applications, they use that, uh, which is abusing the service, obviously, but yeah. okay. Isn't, isn't that, that like a, a binary thing? I mean, you, you get a, a two-factor uh, or text message, but the, the only information is that you got a text message because you exactly cannot really right. use the code in there, right? Or add additional information. Yeah, you can't control the body of this yeah, message. Yeah. So it works as like a notification yeah, that yeah. something happened, but you don't know what's going on around, okay. right? So if you want to get a, a regular uh, text messages, obviously there are services for that, like Twilio and others, yeah. right? You pay like dirt cheap and you, you get the messages. But now comes the question. Okay, so we started with the very simple interface, which was emails. Now we would like to go with text messages, but one may ask a question, are text messages secure? Are emails secure? Emails you can get secured just by using public infrastructure, obviously, but for text messages, you get a very, like a question whether they are encrypted and whatnot. And unfortunately, it's super easy to, to, to decrypt messages when they go over the wire or over the air, right? So what do you need to do? You need to implement your own encryption and then you start sending text messages which are encrypted end-to-end -end, so you can get that secure. And then you, you may be surprised, but sending messages like this is illegal. Why? Because texting, text communication, SMS, is legally allowed only for human-to-human -human communication. So if you send anything that is base 64, not even encrypted, but you know, hashed or whatever, you are breaching the law in some countries. Wow. What? Wait, yeah, I'm like, what? What countries? Like, what if I'm just sending a secret code, you know, to my, to my wife or something like that? You know? Secret code is okay, but if your whole message is encrypted and it's basically gibberish from human point of view, this is illegal. But you, because it shouldn't be used like that. But if Mark's wife can, you know, read base sixty-four, it's just a matter of training. I mean, there's we no use reason. base two fifty-six. <laughs> <laughs> we we don't want the kids know what's happening here. <laughs> So anyway, you do realize that maybe now you're breaching, breaking the law just by encrypting your stuff so no one can read that. But anyway, then you realize yet another thing. Okay, so I do send a text message to my phone. How do I read it on my phone? Because Mark's wife is now proficient with reading base 256, <laughs> but I am not. How do I do that? And then you realize yet another thing which may be tricky, that there is only one application, at, I'm talking from Android world, not iPhone world, but on Android, there is like only one application is allowed to read and, uh, and write uh, text messages. I mean, sending those messages, right? And, and accessing the, sorry, 
To be precise, accessing the SMS database, only one application is allowed to do ah, that. Ah, you refer to database because, you know, some, some uh, I think even, even the Uber app uh, does that, right? It, it requests they privileges, the notification. messages, and then they automatically extract the, the two-factor yes. auth uh, code. Right? Yes, you can extract the notification about the message. You can even send the message. Yeah. But you can't read the database of messages. So, so the history of messages, basically. <coughs> history That's of messages, okay. exactly. Okay. Yeah. So now comes the thing that, okay, even if you install many applications, because like you, I don't know, you used your built-in Google application or Samsung application, then you won't extend those applications to basically decrypt these messages, right? What you can do instead is you can create your own application for SMS, uh, but then you need to use it. So if you have like uh, Wear OS devices, smartwatch or whatever else, you either need to implement another smartwatch application for these text messages, or you lose the, the you know the your ecosystem basically, right? Not to mention that it was another thing that I was super surprised. Actually, implementing application that handles MMS multimedia messages properly is rocket science. And I'm not like overestimating that. If you go on the internet and look for open source applications that can send and receive MMS messages properly, especially when you have flaky internet or you are offline just at this moment, really there are not many applications doing that. Literally, I found one. And I tested like tens of them. So there is no standard for that. MMS is actually a crazy protocol that you need to re-implement on your own again. And there are no, not many open source solutions that you could use. So just getting this done is tricky. And if you want to have ecosystem cooperation, so smartwatch and other stuff, you get lost. So you can get another approach for doing that. Because just like we are hacking stuff, how do you hack the stuff on Android? Well, there is a fantastic application called Automate, very similar to Tasker. I think Tasker is a little bit more popular on Android. But Automate is basically an app that you can configure like callbacks for various events that I have like, I don't know, I received a message, I changed my GPS location, someone is calling me, there is this kind of notification, yada, yada. And you basically have like block UI-based programming language that you can do. If this happened, I do that, okay? And this thingy lets you basically run, for instance, Node.js code, extract the SMS content, decrypt it with Node.js JavaScript code, and write that to file. And once you have that written down to file, the next step you do is I just start a, a web server hosted on my mobile phone and I write a very simple web page that reads those files and shows them in a nice UI. This is actually the easiest way to implement an application native, kind of native application running on your phone without going through Android, Xamarin, other stuff, certificates, installation, and whatnot. Just create a web page. Deployment is super easy, works well, and you have access to whole JavaScript world that gives you anything you can think of. So this is how you can implement like an interface for text stuff. But okay, that's cool. We have emails, we have text messages, 
But let's face it, folks, we would like to have some decent UI, right? And we are too lazy to implement our custom decent UI. So what do we do? Why not text take Rocket Chat or Slack application just for that or IRC? There is actually a fantastic application in IRC world, which is called B2B. B2B is like a, just like Jabber had gateways. B2B is a custom IRC server that has gateways to various other networks. So now you can talk from IRC to any other network you have. Uh, I mean, Jabber, Messenger, Twitter, yada, yada. Uh, but at the same time, you can take any web client or, or mobile client or desktop client that works with Slack or IRC or whatnot. And the only thing you need to do is you need to extract messages from there. So what do you do? You create a new Slack workspace. You create a new channel that represents Mark Miller or Christian Wentz in Facebook, WhatsApp, whatever. You log into Slack over the regular UI, tap your message, hit enter, and there you're good. And then you configure webhook from the Slack channel that takes the message and sends it to your server. And once you get that, bang, you have the communication and you have decent web UI for free and native applications of whatever kind that will be supported forever and ever as long as Slack still works. The only problem as is as long to... As there are, there are webhooks, right? But yeah, um, as I mean, they're they so instrumental to, uh, to the functionality of Slack, so... Yeah, they, that is exactly right. Last, right. Yeah, and there is another, yet another issue you need to solve. Just like we said with text messages, are they safe? Now you may consider, do I want to put my confidential message to Christian Wentz, which is supposed to only route to Facebook? Do I want to put it in Slack? How about we encrypt it again? So we open up Slack, you inject a little bit of JavaScript code that will capture your enter keyword when you click it, Take the message, encrypt it with JavaScript, yada, 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 and then you send encrypted message over this channel, and then you decrypt it on the other way. Uh, what kind of encryption are you using? Are you using a pre-shared key so that the server knows and then the client knows? Because otherwise, I mean... As we mentioned, we are lazy. So obviously we use pre-shared key that is very well hard-coded and not through at any time. <laughs> no, just kidding. But yeah, you just use AES, like Advanced Encryption Standard, yeah. that's it. Because the only thing you need to do is you encrypt in the browser in the Slack entry point. Yeah. Yeah. It gets delivered via webhook to your code, to your server, which you control. You decrypt over it over there and send it to, to Messenger, to WhatsApp, to whatever you wish. So this is how you take that. And those approaches with like, you know, hacking various networks, hacking various encryption schemes and whatnot, you can extend that to, to very, very, um, to other scenarios as well. For instance, to have voice calls just like that. You can, for instance, I will very quickly touch upon this topic. How do you, how would you build an interface that would basically, like, I would like to talk over my phone, dictate the message, and get it sent to Mark over Facebook or over WhatsApp. How would I do that? Well, easy. You just call yourself on Google Voice because Google Voice gives you automated transcription on email. Once you have transcription to email, you get the text and send it over. Free, cheap, bang, and it works. So generally doing that stuff, connecting all those crazy dots of enterprise world 
you can really build this thing, which kind of does the job. And that's the whole point. Wow. I, I, I love that. So, I mean, it, it just, just ballpark now, but many of these things, I mean, they, they're all ingenious, right? But some of them sound like kind of hacks that rely on that nothing changes on the, the third-party systems that would break your implementation. So ballpark numbers. How many of those things will still work like one year from now without your code intervention? Is it like 90% or, or 99% or 50%? Very good question. It's more like 99%. Excellent. Uh, definitely not 50%. Uh, the hardest part actually is now maintaining, uh, maintaining actually WhatsApp WhatsApp maintenance is really painful. And I'm trying to think what other protocols broke recently. And honestly, I can't think of any. What's like active protocols that I support now that I use every day are something like Slack, Messenger, Skype, WhatsApp, Twitter, uh, Discord. I don't use Jabber, but it should still work. But anyway, let's take those six uh, six protocols, right? Uh, out of them, only WhatsApp requires uh, an active maintenance. And this, just to give you numbers, this active maintenance is something like touching the code every third, every fourth week. So that's yeah. pretty often, I would say. WhatsApp breaks really often. Because they change the web UI so often? It kind Just of looks because... stable to me. I mean, I'm I'm uh, using the uh, the Windows uh, client quite a bit, but I mean that's basically an Electron app, right? So it yeah. might be the same yeah. code as the uh, web interface. Actually, yeah. actually, WhatsApp is very flaky, I would say. I mean, I am opening the web page every couple of minutes mm. just to get the messages. And sometimes it works for a couple of days. Sometimes like every five hours, it logs me out, wow. right? But also the web page breaks. Uh, the web page breaks uh, uh, like the the classes, the, the, the message format, the, the placement of things. It just changes. So maintenance is pretty intense. But with other things, I would say 99% of that will work a year from now. Okay. Wow. That is that is that is pretty pretty amazing. And um, probably it's uh, a testament to the to the solid architecture and approach you have. Although it still sounds like voodoo uh, in <laughs> some some respect. <laughs> exactly exactly right. i mean like i said the funniest part the funniest yeah. part actually because like when when you do something at least that's my case when i do something just for myself coding stuff mm -hmm. tdt tests continuous integration maybe will be there maybe not because it's just a tiny project that was supposed to be done in like two evenings, two evenings right yeah. Yeah, and then at some point I realized that I have no idea what's going on and I had to debug a memory dump from my application. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely, really, uh, it was surprising to me how it all turned that, you know, started with something this small and it turned out to be yeah. this big, lasts for so many years, is now critical application for me. Uh, and it works, still works, um, despite the code quality and how how rough it was implemented. And I mean, there, there was at least at least uh, telling from your description, there were there were so many interesting problems to solve 
as part of their journey, right? So that there was a constant flow of not only frustration, but also of, of motivation, I reckon. Are you not afraid that now, uh, once this episode airs, um, uh, WhatsApp uh, and, and the, the other um, teams come knocking at, at your house and want to see the code so that they can stop it from working? Well, I'm just opening WhatsApp web. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. It yeah, 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 fair enough. It's, if it runs on a client, <laughs> it's out of the control of the server. That is complex. Super, super fascinating discussion. Actually, we, we have we have to resume that discussion um, in, in a later episode, definitely, because I'm also super interested about the uh, .NET specific choices you had to make libraries that worked well and especially those that did not work well because i think we can we can uh, all uh, learn from that so really really fascinating project adam um maybe we can eventually share a screenshot of that or something i'd be really really interested uh, to see that all right uh but now it is time for picks so um adam would you would you my pick, pick today. my pick would be related to what I did, but only kind of. Uh, okay. Whenever you go abroad, and uh, we, we spoke about text messages, whenever you go abroad and you need to confirm like your banking transaction that you want mm -hmm. to send money, you pretty often need to confirm that either with push notification or with text message or whatever else, right? This changed over time. The problem with push notifications is that, well, what happens if you lose your phone while being abroad? Yeah. That's a problem. That's my, that's my greatest fun. fear. That's my greatest fear, switching phones. Because, I mean, switching phones with the data, that, that all works reliably well. 2FA does not always yeah, exactly. work uh, reliably well. I mean, especially those those authenticator applications. I mean, there is there, there are two big ones, right? So one can yeah. migrate it, no questions asked, and the other one has to be migrated via cloud, and like 50% of the accounts do get migrated, and the other 50% do not get migrated. So I'm super exactly. psyched about your, your uh, pick today. <laughs> So generally, uh, generally, my suggestion is, despite what they tell you on all the security podcasts, text messages are... Uh, oh, sorry for that, Christian. <laughs> Mark, for you. <laughs> so text messages are better than push notifications when you do travel because you can use a virtual phone number. Mm -hmm. Google Voice or Zadarma or whatever else. And my pick is Zadarma. Okay. Uh, that's a service you need to pay for. So I'm not, it's not a product placement. I just try to convince the, the idea. Get yourself a virtual phone number that will route all the text messages you get to your email. Obviously, you need to have proper encryption and whatnot. This way, if it ha if happens that you lose your phone while being abroad or whatever else, you can still get the text message delivered to email and you can still send that money transfer. So if you need to buy an airplane ticket while being abroad, and it happened to me once when I used to live in the US and I was traveling Europe, I realized, okay, my mobile number, US-based mobile number, has no roaming at all. No roaming. So while being in Europe, I had no access to text messages. And buying an airplane ticket, that was quite a hike. So get yourself a virtual phone number and never get looked out from your banking account. So, Adam, does this mean that with the virtual phone number, I use that phone number for every 2FA yes. mobile message? For every, all of that. 
Yes, you go to your banking application and you change your phone number from your regular one to this virtual one, and that's it. And you install a mobile application uh, on your mobile phone, which can get those messages or you get them over email or whatever else. So technically, like your flow does not change much. And uh, the, the only problem, the, the only change here is that it uses virtual number, which works regardless of whether you have this phone or you lose it or it gets soaked or whatever. Okay. That's it. And so, so those those virtual phone numbers they they can't be kind of detected as such, and so could be on a block list. So so from time to time I use like like mail, postal mail packages forwarding services, right? So when whatever shops don't uh, send something to my country, I get an address in the country of the shop, and then they send it there, and that service forwards it to me. But sometimes uh, I can't use that specific address I got uh, at the forwarding um, provider. So I was wondering whether this is also the case for, for virtual phone numbers. That's a very good question. Uh, technically, they can be detected and uh, one can tell apart whether there's a virtual mm -hmm. phone number or not. However, it does not mean that it won't work. It works with all my banking accounts, with, with stockbrokers and whatnot. You may want to look for your service provider, obviously, especially that if your, let's say, banking account is in Germany, then maybe service provider from Spain won't be recognized as virtual phone number because they will just have no idea, right? So that's the, that's the idea. But yes, technically they can be detected that it's virtual phone number. Okay. You know, this is actually, I think it has other uses as well. When I moved to Spain, one of the things that I found was essential was having a local Spanish oh, yeah. cell phone uh, yeah. because I needed that to, to verify essentially 2FA Uh, or, or, or maybe just verify that I was actually at that phone yeah. number uh, and that it was in, in Spain uh, to, to sign up for uh, internet, for example, right? Any of the local services will, will often ask for a Spanish number and then they'll send you a text message. And that's all I've used this phone for the entire time was basically just confirming on the text that I've got a Spanish phone number so I can get my internet or get whatever the thing is I wanted to get. But I'm betting, do they have the ability for you to pick the country you want the virtual phone number to be in? Yep, they do. And what's more, now when you travel and you actually want to use this phone number, not only as two-factor authentication, but as a real phone number, with eSIM, it's super trivial now, yep. right? Great. You can buy eSIMs for various countries from multiple providers now, so no more buying physical SIM cards. Yeah, yeah. You just go with so for me, it. for me, eSIM was was a game changer. I mean, within Europe, due to free roaming, I mean, uh, I can use my local number everywhere. But outside Europe, yeah, eSIM. Um, because before that, I always had a dual SIM phone. Then, and you know, I got for for the various countries where I'm regularly enough. I had the specific local SIM, which I hope to use as often enough so that it doesn't expire. But yeah, with an eSIM and plus plus an app, there are various providers. Maybe it will be one of my picks uh, for, for the upcoming uh, upcoming sh uh, shows. But today, today I got a different pick since um, since uh, Sean couldn't uh, join us uh, today. I thought, okay, I have to do a streaming pick because it wouldn't be adventures in .NET without a streaming tip. So I started watching uh, on, um, on Apple TV Plus. I started watching Hijack. So Hijack is a show, and um, the the main main actor or main star is Idris Alba. I think he's rumored to be, you know, one of the potential new James Bonds. Um, 
very very famous right. actor. Uh, he's he's starring in uh, in Hijack. So it's like seven episodes, and basically it's a, it's a, it's a plane that flies from Dubai to London. Uh, which takes seven hours, and there are seven episodes, which are well almost an hour. So you know where this is going to, right? Or where it's leading to. And of course, wait! Don't tell me anything else. This sounds awesome already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, it's it's not like twenty four real time, like twenty four the series. Yeah. So not that real time, but but close enough, right? So I'm I'm four out of seven episodes in, uh, and uh, when we are recording this, the final episode will come out in uh, five days. So. Um, I'll need to wait at least four and a half days so that I can binge watch it to the end. It is well done, and obviously some things happen on that flight, right? I don't want to give away too much, but the name of the series, it's called Hijack, uh, might give you... Don't uh, tell me uh, But I won't tell you anything else. Uh, might, might give you a hint as what is happening. But I mean, again, I'm four episodes in, but I still don't know exactly what kind of what is happening, right? So... I'm I'm hooked and um, looking forward to the uh, final three episodes. So go go check it out, Mark. Over are to you, you, Christian? Yeah. Are you able to binge watch the whole thing, or are the episodes coming out? Every They're coming week? out one one every week. So episode six oh. came out this week. Episode seven will come out next week. So and I mean, I I always watch you know in the evening as a kind of a self constraint, so that I don't watch like you know four hours straight because you know I have to get up and work the next day. But when I have watched one episode, there's still time for another episode, right? And therefore, I'm kind of stalling or delaying watching episode five because when I'm watching episode five, I have to watch six right after yeah. that. And I mean, if I've watched six and there's only one more to go, then you know maybe maybe I'm inclined to, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? So uh, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm I'm patient um, and um, I'm secluding myself for five more days and yeah. then I'll watch the rest. That's awesome. I actually, my favorite way to binge watch is one episode a day. So I like, I like waiting till there's like, you know, I, we watched, my wife and I watched Game of Thrones. Yeah. We waited till the whole thing was done, mm -hmm. essentially. And then we got into it, started watching it. We watched the entire series, essentially one episode a day. And it was awesome. That kind of pacing was perfect. I really loved it. We're with the kids. We're watching Breaking Bad right now. Same thing, one episode a day, and it's it's really really good. It depends on the cliffhangers, though, right? <laughs> I mean, if there's a cliffhanger, and I mean, so so it, one of those episodes ends with a shot being fired, and you just hear it, right? I, I can't go to bed. Hey, I can't go to anything. bed, right? I mean, don't say anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> don't say anything. That was a hypothetical. Hypothetical, yeah, right. of course, of course. All right, uh, my pick is uh, the Barbie movie. I recently saw this. This is directed by Greta Gerwig, uh, who I'm convinced now is a genius, by the way. She's a genius because she's got, you know, the, the movie, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, is got, uh, first of all, excellent, one of the best performances by Margot Robbie that I feel like I've seen. Incredible performance by her. Uh, great performance by, by uh, Ryan Gosling. Uh, great writing. Uh, Greta Gerwig's one of the writers. And she directed it. Great directing. Um, flat out. I'm convinced she's a genius, in part because of this, this movie. Um, this movie is, has got a strong fabric woven feminism kind of, kind of resonances throughout this movie. Uh, and I think she presents the argument for feminism in 
in a, an incredibly powerful way in this movie. And the movie isn't, it, 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 it's, 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 the, these messages are, like I said, they're kind of hidden. You kind of, you know, some of them, they'll resonate, they'll resonate with you if you've experienced this or if you're aware of them, that sort of thing. Um, but at one point, she effectively uh, raises the idea that, you know, effectively raises the proposition to men of what if women were all in charge instead of men? Because I think as men, one of the things that is easy to take for granted is that, you know, we can, is essentially the privilege. It's, you know, the, the privilege that it's easier for us to, to get jobs in positions of authority, for example, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's kind of just easy and just kind of happens, I think, more for men than it does for women. Um, and anyway, she, 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 she has, she, she basically, I feel like at a moment, like I was like, and and the thing is, I know, I go in knowing all the arguments, right? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of as, 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 as well-informed of a a feminist, you know, in a, in the male body as I can be, I think, but she is able to, to put forth an argument more compelling than the logic and the rational thought of everything that I was bringing in. And I think she's a genius for being able to do it because I've never seen that done before in a way that I thought was as effective as it was in a movie that was as entertaining as it was. It was incredibly entertaining all the way through. And so, uh, yeah, I think she's a genius. Uh, uh, Margot Robbie's excellent. Uh, And if you are at all in a world where you're thinking, hey, maybe things aren't equal between men and women, and you're thinking about that, and you want to be a little more, you know, knowledgeable about that, or a little more informed, and you want to be entertained. That's the movie you want to go see. And that's exactly the movie you would not expect if you kind of, you know, don't don't have the the context, right? And hear that, oh, a, a new Barbie movie, uh, Barbie movie is is coming out, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. It could be something you would you might easily yeah, dismiss. Exactly. Exactly. And I, but I've heard I, great things you, about the the movie. It scores well yeah, on uh, you, IMDb as well, right? Yeah. No, it's excellent. Yeah. If you want to have a good relationship with if you're a man and you want to have a good relationship with any woman at all, you want to see this movie, right? If you're not, if you're not informed, you will be, I think, incredibly informed and 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 uh, and at least sensitive, certainly to, you know, the differences and the distinctions and what it's like to be, a, you know, a, a woman in this world that we have right now. Excellent. Thanks, Mark. One final question: Are you Team Barbie Heimer? or Team Open Barbie? Because isn't that the meme at the <laughs> moment? Because the Barbie movie and uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer movie, they started on the same day, right? And there are these, these mesh-up fake movie posters with, with, with both of the movies. And actually, uh, several, several movie theaters, they are offering double features. So we, we could, you can watch them back-to-back. And so if you're Team Barbieheimer, you first watch Barbie and then Oppenheimer. And uh, team Open Barbie, you do this uh, vice vice versa, right? Uh, so I, I, I was I was wondering. I haven't watched either of them yet. So uh, with my, I'm 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 rather considering uh, the new um, um, Mission Impossible movie uh, to watch at the movie yeah. theater and uh, then wait for the other movies for 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 streaming services. But uh, well, still still on the fence. Uh, what what do I look and what do I watch first? Well, I'm 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 gonna I. I've actually, so I'm in Spain, I'm in Valencia, Spain, and I, I, I got a, a text message 
uh, from my son who said, uh, just got out of Oppenheimer. Yeah. You must see it. Uh, find an IMAX theater. I am. So I searched for the closest IMAX theater, and the closest one appears to be in Portugal. It's a different country, and I got to go drive, you know, five to nine hours to get to it or yeah. something like that. There are some so I'm concessions like, you have to make, my friend. <laughs> I know. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the concession is going to be a smaller screen or if it's going to be a nine-hour drive. But you're right. There's going to be there's going to be something. And so we, that re recommendation came came in. I'm seeing a lot of good reviews for Oppenheimer. I, I want to see it, and I really I want to see uh, Tom Cruise's movie too because I've been watching these behind the scenes on his stunts and and the way they're making this movie. This this the way the movie is being made. It's probably it could be like one of the last times a movie like this is made in this way, where they're doing so many practical stunts with practical, I you know practical equipment that's really happening and they're really interacting with. Plus, Tom Cruise is like practicing, practicing. He's doing something like thirteen thousand motocross jumps, right, just for one particular stunt where he goes off the edge with a with a uh, uh, a parachute on the on his back, right. And so this guy is like just just practicing, practicing, practicing. I just don't think there's another there's another opportunity coming in the future yeah. where somebody's going to be able to make a movie like this. I want to see it, but it's a part one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know Again, how I am. I don't, don't want to yeah, yeah. wait. There's going to be a gunshot at the end of Mission Impossible might, Part 1. And I don't know what happened. <laughs> I can't wait a year to find out that. I gotta, so I don't know what to do. You have to wait to for the it. double feature next year then, probably, yeah. I got yeah, it. that's what I want to do. Maybe. Excellent. All right. Great episode. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you, everyone, uh, for tuning in. And uh, see you all uh, next time here on Adventures in .NET. Bye-bye.